What I've described in this book shouldn't just make us aghast. It should make us want to do more. It should make us use our influence to demand legal change and to work for cultural change. This can be done by speaking out, by using social media, by joining grassroots movements to fight against abortion, and also by joining movements to help women in need. Helping struggling women is very meaningful. Every woman having a baby needs a support system, someone also to share their joys and sorrows. There's so much that we can do for others, and we can also support charities that help children in need. Ultimately, the pro-life cause is the cause of conscience. It is the cause of the caring heart. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys. That opening quote is a quote by Danielle D'Souza Gill from her latest book, The uh, The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. We are going to be having a conversation with her today. I'm extremely excited for it. My name is Peter, and once again, I'm with my co-host, Cam. Hello, sir. Hey, Peter. Totally psyched to be back with you here. Um, It is a good day to do a podcast, and I think this podcast will be especially interesting, not because both you and I have had a chance to read through the book or, or I listened to it on audiobook, which in my humble opinion, doesn't really count as reading a book, but um, it, it's a close second. Um, sorry to all you audiobook people out there. Um, I just have a hard time beating um, the cold, crisp pages of a book. Um, I'm, I'm super interested in this, especially with the um, political climate, the cultural climate of America right now, following up a couple of weeks ago, we interviewed um, Seth Dreyer from Created Equal. I think this fits really well in the prevailing conversation in the culture right now. And so I'm, I'm really excited toward, uh, about being able to discuss this with Danielle. For those of you who are new to the show, we are the Pro-Life Guys podcast. We are two guys who are passionate about ending the killing of pre-born children in Canada, which is where we live, uh, but we're also passionate about ending the killing of pre-born children around the world. And this is a podcast dedicated to giving you the tools you need to change minds and save lives from abortion. Cam and I both work for an organization whose sole purpose is to educate the public, educate the culture, to go out on the streets and have conversations. And what we want to do in this podcast is use the things that we have learned over the last decade of having conversations, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of conversations that we've had. Uh, we want to we want to bring to the podcast what we've learned so that you too can be equipped to have effective and meaningful and winsome conversations. Like I said, today we are having Danielle D'Souza Gill on the podcast. Extremely excited for it. She has also authored the book, Why God? An Intelligent Discussion on Relevance and on the relevance of faith. She's filmed videos for Prager University. She's been a Turning Point USA ambassador. She's been on various TV and radio networks, including Fox News, One America, and more. And she's the youngest advisory board member of Women for Trump, a coalition of Donald Trump's campaign. And we are going to be talking to her today, like I mentioned, about her latest book, The Choice. The Abortion Divide in America. We had a great time with Danielle, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, pro-life guys. Yeah, we are super excited. To start, it off, to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about who you are? Yes, I can. 
I'm Danielle, and I wrote a book called The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. And in the book, I debunk the pro-choice side's most popular myths and arguments. So everything from a fetus is a cluster of cells, to my body, my choice, to abortion empowers women, to uh, what about paying for it? What about federal funding for abortion? What about if this child has Down syndrome? What if it has a complication? What about if some people in the world are better off dead? What about just um, the social implications of all of this? So I kind of go into many different arguments that I hear from different pro-choice people, and every chapter is titled after a different um, argument of that nature. And then in the chapter, I kind of debunk it and respond to it. But I kind of assume that the person who is reading this or diving into it either holds that pro-choice view or maybe isn't sure what they think yet about that topic. So that's kind of how I approach the book. And um, yeah. Sweet. So stepping back just a little bit, were you were you pro-life from birth? Did you become pro-life later? Uh, what made you passionate about the abortion conversation? Yes, I think we're all pro-life before birth because otherwise there's no other way to go. Um, and I think if you ask anyone who um, probably actually had their life at stake, many of us find it hard to kind of understand what that child is going through, what that child would experience in the womb, because we've never been attacked in the womb, many of us. There are abortion survivors and people who have uh, lived through that to tell the tale, but most of us can't really understand that. But we all actually do have the privilege of being born, and that's not something that everyone gets to enjoy. So um, I definitely think we should all be pro-life. But I think that for me, it really comes down to just the facts on the issue. I feel like if you are pro-choice, it actually takes a lot more mental gymnastics and so on in order to kind of defend that position. The science doesn't support what they think, and neither does human rights, neither does really the, the social implications either, and kind of creating a culture of life, which I think would solve a lot of our other social problems as well. So um, no, I feel like almost every point really that I can think of pro points to the pro-life side. That's awesome. And and it, it's super neat through the book, you share a little bit about your journey towards your, your role now in politics and the importance of, of the abortion conversation in politics. We're going to get to that um, in, in just a moment here. But I'm curious about your journey towards writing a book. I mean, I'm sure that you're familiar with lots of the books out there. We've talked about many of them on this podcast, Scott Lucendorf, Randy Alcorn, that sort of thing. Share a little bit about your journey towards writing this this book, The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America, um, what what I I really enjoyed. I, th I think that this really kind of draws a lot of things together. But, but tell us a little bit about the journey towards writing this book. What made you want to write a book, especially this kind of book, I suppose? Yeah, it's not easy just because I feel like putting everything together, just all the research. I think I have about 350 footnotes, around 300 pages of work. So it's definitely a lot of research involved. And when I first started, I thought, wow, okay, is there going to be that much on abortion? Because I feel like people could say, well, I just have this one reason that I'm, you know, pro-life, pro-choice, whatever it is. And it's like, actually, it's very complicated. And as I dived into really all of the different elements, the legal side, the medical side, um, just kind of what the pro-choicers are saying, there's actually a huge well of information there. So um, I really started with kind of the research side of it and then went into um, organizing it how I felt like would be most accessible, most interesting to people. And I wanted people to be able to flip to whatever chapter they felt like they you know, we're drawn to and can kind of dive into that, um, hopefully read the whole thing as well. But, you know, if a friend asks them about a sp certain topic, I wanted them to be able to get it. Um, but yeah, I really started writing the book once I moved to New York City. Um, Governor Cuomo lit up the Freedom Tower pink to celebrate nine-month abortions here in these last couple years uh, for no medical reason. So I think just kind of seeing this celebration of abortion from the radical left, from seeing them really arguing that it empowers women and arguing that this is something that the rest of the nation should follow. That's what he said. I felt like that's something that has to be countered, kind of also looking at the feminism side of it, in addition to um, some of the other arguments as well, um, just because I feel like that is what the culture is pushing, especially in a lot of really prominent magazines, a lot of prominent celebrities say things like that. And um, I just felt like it had to be countered. And especially when we're talking about where the left is on this issue, which is at the nine month point. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I loved when I picked up your book was it was it was very research heavy. Like it wasn't like you were just pulling arguments from your head and, and just trying to write down what you were thinking, but really pulling in from so many different people 
uh, and so many different uh, areas to to bring this book together. But then it wasn't like it wasn't like a school textbook, you know. It was very it's very accessible, like you said, um, which is one of the things that I absolutely loved as I walked through it. But talking about Governor Cuomo, talking about the left, uh, you 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 touch on this a little bit introduction uh, in your introduction that abortion access is it's kind of at the center of the political left and um yeah like this is this is where they've come perhaps the the left wasn't like this you know decades ago uh but today they very much are characterized by their support for abortion why do you think this is why do you think that for the left abortion is this untouchable golden calf yeah i think when it really comes down to it they don't actually care that much about the minimum wage they don't care that much about the illegal immigrant They don't care that much about even, you know, things like coronavirus, whatever it is that they're talking about. Everything for them really goes back to their core ideology. And I think it ultimately goes back to the 1960s and basically this kind of sexual revolution where they argued that, you know, sex is kind of the hill we have to die on in order to defend this lifestyle, in order to kind of keep this going, we have to be willing to accept whatever consequences that is. And if that means that we have to sacrifice children, then we have to sacrifice children. And I think that unfortunately, their entire narrative is based on this idea that um, they want to continue living like that. And they don't want to just have them live like that. They want everyone to live like that. It's not enough for them to just be able to do it. They want you to pay for it and they want you to celebrate it and they want you to take part in it. So that's really where we are right now. And unfortunately, any person who counters that narrative, whether it's because you had an abortion and you regret it, or whether it's because you're a father and you want to raise your child, or maybe you're a woman who realizes that this isn't empowering, maybe you chose adoption instead or whatever it is, they don't want to hear those stories and they don't like those voices because they know that it counters their narrative of basically making sure that they can continue this mass rampage of abortion. And I kind of look at a little bit about how I think this kind of fueled um, everything with Trump in 2016 and how they knew that he would remake our courts. When everyone says, oh my gosh, the court, the court, it's like they're not worried about the court's decision about, you know, a national park or something. They're worried about the court's decision when it comes to something like abortion because they know that Roe v. Wade is at risk. They know that, you know, it could be overturned. And so I think that is also kind of the case with the Kavanaugh situation. The Me Too movement, that's what they tried to make it about, but they were very worried that Kavanaugh would be part of overturning Roe v. Wade. And I think when we fast forward to Amy Coney Barrett, they kind of knew that, okay, we actually can't really stop Amy Coney Barrett. You know, we can't really say she's a rapist. So let's attack her children. Let's attack her for adopting people from Haiti. But you know what? We can't stop her from being confirmed. So why don't we just maybe think about packing the court and so on? So they've kind of shifted in this other direction. And even Biden has talked about how even if Roe v. Wade's overturned, they're basically going to try to replicate the same thing in the legislature. So I think the left definitely knows the end of Roe v. Wade is coming. It's just a matter of time. Um, and I think it definitely underpins a lot of our other political issues. And, and I think that's so important for listeners and, and for obviously readers of this book to realize as well that you mentioned earlier that in many ways, part of the target audience are people who are kind of on the fence on a lot of these issues. But I think in, in a lot of ways, it can speak really, really well and, and be an incredible resource for those who are kind of well, I'm, I'm pro-life and I'm sure the, the abortion advocates are satisfied now. They have abortion on demand. You can go to whatever state you want. And, and there's, I feel like there's this prevailing view among Christians, among pro-lifers that, you know what, as long as we give them whatever they're asking for right now, then they'll be satisfied. We can just go back to, to living our daily lives. But I think you put it really well there that that's not what the left is about. There, This is a progression towards not only increased access, increased funding, but also they, they want you to actively support this choice. This isn't um, a matter of them being satisfied once they've had whatever they want and they can go celebrate it on their own. They want everyone celebrating it with them. And I think that's a really concerning point for people in America and people around the world that this isn't just about them. This is about them coming after you and your rights and your ability to defend your pro-life worldview in that and whatnot. And I, I think it's really neat how direct and, and the tone that you've kind of taken in this book to try to, in some ways, I I appreciate it for trying to mobilize the um, the the pro-lifer who isn't convicted or active, I guess. And and I'm wondering if, if you could speak a little bit to that, the, the tone that you've taken in the book to try to be very direct, to try to be very, very um, yeah, not not mincing any words on 
on the, the different points you make, not pulling any punches, but just telling people the way it is and kind of the tone that you've adopted for the book. Yeah, I think honestly, pro-lifers are some of the nicest people I've ever met. They're some of the most genuine, sweet, adorable people. Whenever I meet them, I just want to squeeze them and give them a hug. But I think that when it comes to this horrible, horrible state that we're in, um, in America, at least with, you know, these nine-month abortions and pushing abortion really um, to the point, as you mentioned, with celebrating it, I think that pro-lifers are like, wait, oh my gosh, what am I going to do here? I want to be the nice guy. I want to have everybody love me and like everybody. And I think the hard thing is that, you know, unfortunately, truth is not something that people take well, especially when it's painful and especially when we're exposing this great evil. And I think something I would just say to a lot of pro-lifers out there is that you're not going to be liked by everyone. You know, maybe fast forward 50 years, 100 years, of course, I, I think that we will be on the right side of history. We'll be seen as the abolitionists of slavery and so on. And people will say, oh, yeah, of course, I was pro-life. I would have been on that side, you know, when it's cool or and so on. But at the time when the going's tough, where were you? They were silent. And I think that as pro-lifers, we shouldn't expect to get some kind of rewards. We shouldn't expect to get any points in the culture or any of that because we are fighting on the side of truth. And unfortunately, our culture is run by many people who want to suppress that. They're on the left. They support abortion very blatantly. So um, I think it's just kind of um, an awakening to the reality of the situation. But I wouldn't worry. I would say, you know what, it's okay, because we are very strong people. And actually, if pro-lifers do mobilize and use their voice more, maybe that's talking to a family member, talking to a friend, going to your pastor at church, asking the elders, hello, why have you not discussed pro-life here? Why have you not used your platform to talk about this moral issue? I think if we mobilize our voices, then we can make huge change. It's not by you know being crazy people on the streets destroying stuff like many on the, on the other side do, but we can do it just literally through arguments and through talking to people. And even for many pro-lifers, they find that to be too much because of cancel culture and social intimidation. So I would just start there. And and I think that's a great point. I, I think that often in, in America, in Canada, in countries around the world, a lot of people think that their only opportunity to make change is during an election. That, you know what, I, I work really hard to cast my vote and to get my neighbors to cast a vote similar to mine. Whether the election goes the way we want it to, do, uh, want it to or, or not, okay, well, now I've got four more years or however many more years before I can do anything productive again. And yet right there you lay out what people can do in between election cycles, during election cycles, everyone. That's something that this podcast is all about, having those conversations to change minds and save lives. And that that kind of feeds into the political progress of a nation, that, that public opinion often is necessary for a shift in public policy. And I, I wonder if, if you give um, whether a, a word of encouragement or, or just advice kind of building on that with, you know what, it, it is absolutely vital that we do express um, our, our opinions in the voting booth, that we absolutely have to make this a priority. And yet, what do we do in between election cycles? What do we do um, regardless of the outcome of this election or other elections? How do we continue to build towards a pro-life nation? Yeah, I think it's ultimately changing the culture. And I know that sounds so crazy because it seems like the culture, quote unquote, is against us. But we have to remember this culture is actually just a few Hollywood leftist elites. And what is culture? What is actually the, I would guess I would say a social moray? What is the actual view of many people? I think actually pro-life is extremely common sense. And most people I've even talked to here in New York who are leftists, limousine liberals, whatever you want to call it, they're like, oh, abortion at nine months and nine months, why is that necessary? Why is abortion at the third trimester necessary? And I always say to them, no, it's not necessary. Delivery, yes, not abortion. You have, no matter what, you have to remove this child from the womb. You have to take it out. So you're either going to be delivering a dead child or an alive child. So if you deliver this alive child and then administer health care to it, then that's what I would say. You give health care to the woman, the child, which whatever is happening in that situation. They say, well, what if the child's going to die? And you say, well, then you do everything that you can. You deliver it. You give it, give it the health care it needs. If it doesn't make it through that, then... Unfortunately, the healthcare was not sufficient in that case. But there's no reason to directly target this child, to directly inject poison into its heart, into its brain, kill it, dismember it, and so on. And I feel like we should start with convincing people who um, maybe aren't pro-life in all circumstances, but we have to work our way backwards and eventually get to the point where they see what's obvious. And I think that what's obvious is clearly um, pointing to the pro-life side over 
75% of Americans are not for late-term abortion. So what the left is pushing is not resonating. And the fact that they push for federally funded abortion, that also is not um, the majority opinion's view. So that doesn't resonate either. So this idea that, oh, we don't have the culture, let's just give up. It's like, no, we actually do. We actually do have most people agree with us with their common sense. But I think that if you're a person who's undecided or doesn't know about this and you have a pro-life friend and your pro-life friend is like, oh, I can't talk about it. I don't know and stuff. They're going to be like, oh, okay, well, I guess maybe they don't have any good arguments or maybe they don't, you know? So I would just say to just make sure that you're armed with some of the facts, make sure that you're armed with some of the arguments so that if you are talking to a family member or friend, that you are ready for those discussions. Because um, I think sometimes these topics are so painful and hard to talk about that then we say, oh, I don't really want to dive into it. But um, the only way we can really change it is by, uh, by doing that. So I would just encourage you to kind of put on your seatbelt and dive in. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And and I think that, that that speaks so well to the fact that the, the culture tries to paint pro-lifers as radicals, but the pro-life position isn't radical at all. Like, like if, if it's radical to think that it's wrong to directly and intentionally kill literally the weakest and most vulnerable member of the human species, if that's a radical opinion, then um, then we are in a very, very problematic, very messed up society. Um, touching on a point that, that you had mentioned uh, a few times, and I, I find this point so interesting. It's something that we talk about often on the show. You draw the parallel through the book but between abortion and slavery, slavery um, throughout the history, not only in America, but around the world, and how how many different parallels there are. And I think there's a lot of incredible value towards bringing up that um, parallel example, not only because, like you mentioned, um, it's perceived that everyone is against us and that this is enshrined in society, not only because of the magnitude and the urgency of the, the issue at hand, but I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that parallel and why it's so important to think of the injustice of abortion similar to other injustices that have tragically reigned in society at different times in history. Yeah, I think if we look at the abortion arguments made today, they actually mirror slavery almost exactly. If you look at this even pro-choice argument, this pro-choice argument was made um, for slavery as well. Stephen Douglas, who was the Democrat who would debate um, Abraham Lincoln, he said that, you know, why don't we have this thing called popular sovereignty, which is basically where every state gets to decide if they want to vote slavery up or down. So he would say, I'm not personally for slavery, but why can't each state decide if they want slavery? Why can't we have a pro-choice position, for example? Why do you have to be so extreme, Lincoln? Why do you have to make these arguments on the other side? And Lincoln would say that he wanted to see everyone who made this argument have slavery tried on him personally, something to that effect. And I think that that makes so much sense because if we're actually talking about us as the deciders, as the overlords of society, okay, yeah, maybe it's easy to then say, hmm, why don't we give this person life or death? But if it's your life that's in question, your tune might change. And I think even when we um, kind of look at the pro-choice arguments that they would make, but also their pro-slavery arguments, right now we've kind of shifted to hearing the left talk about pro-abortion arguments in terms of celebrating abortion, in terms of abortion as a positive good. It's good for the woman. It's it's good for the baby. It's actually good for society. It's good for everyone. And that's exactly what they said in terms of slavery when it came to the Civil War. They didn't say that in the time of the founding ever. In the time of the founding, they would say this is a, an evil. This is something that we need to eradicate. We don't know how, though. But in the time of slavery, many shifted to the argument that slavery, it's actually good for the slave. We are actually doing a favor to the slave. And guess what? We are also doing a favor to society. Look at our economy. Look at all these things. And they start making all these positive arguments for slavery, which were never made before. And I think that it, it kind of stemmed from their fear that slavery was actually in great danger. And I think the left today has that same fear. They know abortion is in great danger. And they know that if they um, don't kind of go on the offensive of basically saying abortion is a positive good, that they're probably going to actually be losing this. And that's why I think that we're actually at a time in American history where we could see a great awakening when it comes to this abortion issue. And we could see Roe v. Wade overturned. We could see many minds changed. And I think that the way that the left acts when they treat this issue kind of indicates that to me. Yeah, uh, that's that's really good. Uh, so Cam and I, we, um, 
we work for an organization and we spend time on the streets talking to people. We, we try to reach the culture and everything we do. And we often get, uh, sp specifically Cam and I and the rest of our male colleagues here, we often get very open-minded and very progressive people inform us that we are men. And because we are men, we ought to have no say on this particular issue. Um, Wait, but what about like the fact that there are 36 genders? Yeah, well, I, that's that's the thing, and and just informing me that I'm a man before I tell them that I'm a man, I, I find quite offensive as well. So uh, they 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 come to us and they say we should have no opinion on abortion. Now I'm a father, Cam's a father, um, and yet uh, any decision regarding our child before birth uh, is a decision that is not to be made by us, but only the mother. So I was pretty excited when one of the myths that you debunked and you discussed was the myth that only women. Could uh, could have, uh, 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 only women could have a. Uh, oh boy, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, have a say. Yeah, only women could have, have a say, an opinion on abortion. Um, so, being a woman yourself, um, is it cool that that two guys have a podcast where this is pretty much all we talk about? It's very Please say cool. yes. It's very very cool. Cool award of the year. It's very cool. Because, no, we need everyone talking about the pro-life issue, this idea that it's a women's issue or it's a gender issue. Um, the reality is both baby girls and baby boys are aborted. Both mothers and fathers are involved in creating this child. So this is a societal issue that affects everyone. It affects the entire family unit. And I think that this whole argument the left makes that, you know, men have no say in abortion, it's basically just to say, oh, you know, if you're actually a pro-choice guy, we welcome you. But if you're a pro-life guy, then you want to control our bodies and we hate you. So um, I don't think it really even comes down to gender, but I think actually the most good men are the ones who would fight for pro-life. It's really only bad men who are in favor of abortion, who want you know the pro-choice ideology to prevail because they use basically women as objects. They use sex as a way to control them. And they basically want to be able to live their life, have casual sex whenever they want with whoever they want. And if their woman gets pregnant, they give her $500 and say, go take care of it. And then they continue to treat them like animals in that way. Meanwhile, the woman has to go deal with this abortion and deal with the emotional fallout of it, deal with the surgical abortion, which is the most popular procedure, all of that. Meanwhile, he goes on to live his life. But if you are a pro-life man, you're fighting for personal responsibility for the family unit and for actually uh, respecting women and children. So I think that it's, it's absolutely vital that men are pro-life because we need to have strong families in order to fix the cultural issue that we were talking about. I mean, Abortion itself is so poisonous to the family. And I think if we don't have men who are pro-life, then we won't have uh, that strong family unit. Yeah, I, I think often of the, the meme that's been circulating within pro-life circles, at least, of, of the father talking to his son and the father says to him, son, one day you'll be a man. And then the son responds, but dad, I'm 30. And the dad says, yeah, but you're pro-choice. That, that this like you're not really a man and, until you actually care for the people around you. you. You put the line so great in the book of actually wanting the best thing for the other person. Um, I want to I want to circle back to a point that you just made about kind of something of an awakening happening right now in America. I think often of a book by George Grant um, called Third Time Around, which kind of talks through how abortion has actually become mainstream twice already in, in society and how Christians have risen up to engage their um, fellow man and then have conversations and make political action and really thrust abortion from um, from society. This has happened twice already, both in the kind of growth of Christianity in the early um, second, third, fourth century sort of thing, and then again um, through after the, the Renaissance sort of thing. And I wanted to pick your brain a little bit on the timing of this book. I, I think that it, it's really profound that the timing of launching this book, 2020, not only is there a presidential election, but I think that, like you said, there is building momentum within the pro-life community. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the timing, whether it was super intentional, whether this is been something that's been on the on the shelf for for several months or several years and this was the perfect timing to do it or if it's just kind of providential that this book is coming out right now or, or tell us about the timing of the book 
Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I think that in some ways, when I was thinking about writing this book, I know you mentioned Randy Alcorn and some others, and I absolutely love their books. And I was thinking, you know, I feel like there hasn't really been um, kind of a, a recent a deep dive into this that kind of looks at what, what the culture is saying now. And that's kind of what led me to write it. But I think that it was really funny how the, I think the week my book came out or the next week um, is when they announced that um, Amy Coney Barrett was nominated and all of that. And so there was a lot happening in, in the court, all of that was being discussed. And I think just kind of seeing how even the fact that somehow we decided to make the art of the book cover this pink book to kind of take back pink from Planned Parenthood. That's why I wanted it to be pink to basically show that no, actually this Planned Parenthood narrative that abortion empowers women, no, actually pro-life empowers women. And um, But just seeing kind of her nominated in that same time and seeing kind of celebration of um, conservative women and I think family values was really, really cool to have that happen at the same time as my book coming out. And of course, it's, it's a crazy time. So there's a lot happening. But I definitely think that it was it was meant to be just because I never would have known a year ago when I was working on it, what would be happening that week when it was coming out, I never would have um, expected it. But I do think that this abortion issue has been brewing. And it's it's definitely bubbling to to the top. Um, so I think we're going to see see a lot of changes with that issue. Mm-hmm. Even even the format of it. So so we touched on Alcorn. I um, I honestly when I when I read the book in the style, the way that you've laid it out chapter by chapter in kind of tackling different myths of the movement. Even um, not. I mean. It's a wonderful book. I I don't know if I'm quite ready to put it on the level of, of Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica, where he kind of like lays out the the argument of the opposition and then tackles it part by part. But I, I loved how you took that on. And, and really, I, I don't think that you strawmanned any of those arguments. It was a very clear, like, this is what the abortion advocates say on this topic and that topic. And, and then really a very methodical um, dismantling of those arguments. And, and I'm wondering... So you mentioned a few of the themes that, that you touched on. Um, I, I don't want to spoil too much for, for our listeners because I really want to encourage them to not just listen to the podcast, but, but read the book as well. But was there, was there a topic that was really, really surprising or interesting or really stood out to you of, you know what, I've heard this defended poorly on countless occasions, and here's how we should actually be defending this. Here's um, a, a more concrete, a more understandable, more accessible was there a particular theme that really stood out to you or maybe a couple of themes? Yeah, I just thought of something, but it's a little bit more political, but I'll just throw it out there because it popped into my brain. Um, I guess just this idea that I actually have heard from people, at least right before the election, some people who are Christian, kind of pro-life, maybe kind of not that pro-life, they would say things like, um, I actually saw an article on this topic, but um, I think it was from, oh, someone very famous, but I'm forgetting his name right now. Anyway, it was basically saying something like Trump is mean and he's arrogant and there's like this culture of arrogance he creates and that's more evil than the culture of abortion. And um, so we can't have man be prideful. So I can't vote for Trump, but I think I'm going to vote for Biden. And then um, that's like not as bad because if I do that, this arrogant thing is worse than abortion. And I guess whenever I heard anyone who's pro-life respond to something like that, they would basically go down the road of saying, no, abortion's worse than arrogance. Abortion's killing a human being, so-and-so and so-and-so. Obviously, I agree with that. But I think just the premise is messed up. When I read that, I was just thinking, you think that Trump is arrogant. And I guess I just, A don't get why you think Biden is such a nice person. Just this idea that we even concede this premise, like you think this guy's a meanie and this guy's a nice person. It's like, no, Biden's not a nice person. He is not a nice guy. Have you seen the corruption? Have you looked into Ukraine? Have you looked into what his policies are doing to to, to these children, but also how he will use faith to defend doing these things? That is a definition of evil. You're basically trying to justify this evil thing by hiding behind the shield of God and so on. And so I think sometimes what frustrates me is just seeing sometimes us giving in on the premise of something, giving in to the 
um, kind of the paradigm that the other side is setting up as if we're just saying, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Trump's evil. It's like, um, no, he's not evil. He's fighting for the unborn. Are you fighting for the unborn? Apparently not. Is the other side fighting for the unborn? No, they actually want them to die. Um, and of course, you know, there are many other issues to dive into there. But I guess just, I think giving in on the premise of something is not something I think that we should be doing as pro-lifers. Yes, it's easy for us to just pivot to something else, but I don't think that's actually truthful. So that's just something that popped into my mind. Yeah. And, and I think about 2016 when Trump was running. And uh, so we're from Canada, uh, which means he's he's literally not our president. Um, <laughs> but we, you know, one of the concerns I had was, you know, it, it seemed like Donald Trump was Democrat or, or supported some of the Democrat policies until shortly before he ran for the Republican nomination. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, although he was saying some pretty good things. And then he got Mike Pence to be his running mate. And that was really encouraging because he was fighting abortion well before it was cool, uh, a cool thing to do in the Republican Party. Um, and then we see the last few years. Sorry. Trump made it cool. Yeah. Well, that's that, cool before 2016. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, we look at some of the policies that he's put in place and some of the things that he has done over the last few years uh, that really have protected many preborn children and have made the left extremely mad. And then I think about uh, a, a recent but relatively small, thank God, movement uh, called Evangelicals for Biden. And they say in one of their their statements that they are pro-life. They do think abortion is wrong. Uh, but Trump's not the guy who's going to do that. And even though Biden supports abortion, uh, all of his other social policies and, and welfare policies and socialist policies, although they don't say socialist policies, uh, but all the other policies are significantly more pro-life than Donald Trump's and are going to lower the abortion rate um, more than Donald Trump will. How would you respond to that? Like this evangelical for Biden uh, and Kamala uh, concept and idea when these two figures are promoting abortion outright. Yeah, I would say with that group specifically, that's definitely political posturing. I think a lot of those people writing that are probably not even personally pro-life. But if we were to dive into their argument, which is that, hey, social programs and these other things uh, decrease the need for abortion and so on, I kind of dive into that in some of the chapters in my book where I go look at um, sometimes the left argues things like, oh, you know, if we uh, know this child is going to be abused in the home, if we know that it's going to be in a bad neighborhood, if we know all these things and it's going to be suffering, then why should we have it in this world? And it should be better off dead. And they somehow make this argument that abortion helps the foster care system. And abortion actually doesn't help the foster care system at all. They're completely unrelated. So if you want to fix the foster care system, make it better, that's great. But that has absolutely nothing to do with this because if you ask any of these children who did grow up in foster care, there are there are many, and they would not wish they were dead. If you were to go into Harlem right now with a gun and start killing people and say, oh, I'm doing you favors, doing you favors, that's wrong. That's not right at all. These people don't want to die. So I would say, no, we need to actually fix, as, fix the environment that they're growing up in. We need to fix the family unit and then fix schools, fix all these other things, ways that they can have opportunities. And I think that's why President Trump has pushed so hard for school choice, because if you do grow up in a bad neighborhood, why should you be trapped in a horrible school? People's education is one of the biggest determinants of whether or not they uh, become a criminal, whether or not they get to be successful in life, all those things. So why should you be trapped in a bad one? You should be able to go whatever, to whatever school you want. You should be able to go to the best school in the country. And um, so I think that actually all of President Trump's policies align with the pro-life view, not just before the child is born, but after the child is born. And in addition to that, there are many pregnancy centers, crisis pregnancy clinics. Biden and Harris want to shut those down. They don't want those people people to be helped because they're going to put a millstone around their neck by basically saying, if you don't um, advertise for abortions, you won't be able to take people's Medicare and Medicaid, and you won't be able to do all these other things. So a lot of those will probably go out of business um, because it goes against many of those people's conscience to advertise abortion. Um, so I actually don't agree with the premise of that argument at all. And most of the policies that Biden and Harris are pushing are very anti-pro-life. I can't think of one that's remotely pro-life. It's not a toss-up. It's not like, oh, you know, they're doing some stuff and this side is doing a little more stuff. So I kind of like the side doing more. It's like, no, this is anti and this is for. And that's when, that's the same when it comes to pre-birth as well as after birth. 
And and like you mentioned at, at the beginning of the show, that, that that is really integral to both of the sides of, of the political spectrum, right? That, that this is everything kind of feeds back into this pro-abortion worldview or this pro-life worldview. And that, like you mentioned, even many of the, the policies that Trump has put forward, you could actually characterize as being more pro-choice than the, like as much as we can't take back the term pro-choice. I, I honestly feel, in on my opinion, that, that that has been too thoroughly embraced by the abortion movement that I don't think that it's a, a worthwhile exercise for pro-lifers to try to take back pro-choice. But like that idea of choice and education that we have a ton of common ground. Yes, there's a lot of problems in America, in Canada, around the world. There's a lot of problems that need to be addressed. It, it seems like Trump that um, him and others have been working towards how do we enable the flourishing of all life and those biden harris others have been working on just how do we either line the pockets of the people that that we um align with or that sort of thing that 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 again draws back to that that cultural divide among people of do we want to solve problems in a way that's going to benefit everybody or are we going to just try to solve problems that are going to benefit our friends and people that are really easy and really convenient to to support and help, I guess. And and I think that that's really important to continually come back to. That, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of problems, I'm sure, as well, with um, end-of-life care and whatnot. And, and sure, we don't have a cure for cancer at this point. You don't cure cancer by killing all the cancer patients. You don't say, oh, well, some cancer patients have said that, yes, they, they wish that they um, didn't go through that. They wish that they had never endured that. We're going to extend that to being they wish they were dead and we're going to go through and kill all of the cancer patients. You don't cure cancer by killing cancer patients. You don't cure Down syndrome by killing Down syndrome um, people. You don't, uh, people with Down syndrome, you don't um, cure any of the social ills of society by killing the people who are experiencing those ills. You work with those people. You try to find solutions um, as as limited as those solutions might be right here and now, you got to work towards those. You can't simply kill the people who are enduring whatever suffering people are trying to focus on, I guess. That's more of a statement than a question, but... Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think even looking at the end of life, like you mentioned, it's like President Trump has been so in favor of right to try to preserve life, not end life. And I think many on the other side are unfortunately very quick to end life and to say, you know, we need to have assisted suicide, we need to have euthanasia, we need to have all these things, um, not just as far as the beginning of life, but end of life and, and all of this. And I think it ultimately comes from the fact that we live in this larger culture of death, this idea that, you know, death, I mean, why not? I mean, what's the big deal? Death is uh, killing people. Why should a doctor not be able to kill someone else? And it's like, well, that is not the purpose of being a doctor. The doctor's purpose is to heal people. And um, I think that we've gotten really far off track, off track from the Hippocratic Oath and this oath that, you know, thou shall not uh, kill another. I think, wow, who would have thought that would be controversial? <laughs> the one thing all of communities basically agreed on throughout the entire world is killing bad. Kill, killing an innocent person, bad. But that is no longer agreed upon anymore. And um, I think that if we can fix this abortion issue, as far as valuing those human lives, then many more lives after birth will also be valued. Danielle, in the conclusion of your book, you highlight uh, two important focuses that we need to have uh, in terms of ending abortion. You talk about uh, the need for political change. You talk about the need for cultural change. So I, I have two questions, uh, one for each of those. Uh, the first one, you mentioned Kavanaugh. You've mentioned uh, Amy Coney Barrett, which we have been watching uh, from north of the border with great excitement, uh, we do confess. Um, but the it, it seems like the court's in a unique position right now that the left uh, is not very fond of, to put it lightly. So... Do you expect to see political change on the Roe versus Wade front in the next few years? I do. Yeah. I think that people used to say, you know, Roe v. Wade will be overturned one day, may not be in our lifetime, but one day I would say we definitely shifted from that. It is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. Um, I think there are a couple ways that they could do it. One way would be kind of the chipping away at Roe way, which would be we're going to look at a heartbeat bill. We're going to look at a certain restriction. We're going to look at this, that. And then eventually we're going to kind of find reasons why these are going to uh, be upheld. The second option would be for them to basically do a lethal blow to Roe v. Wade in a certain decision where they would do something similar to what 
uh, Brown v. Board of Education did to Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson basically said segregation is okay because separate is equal. Separate is equal. Then Brown v. Board came along and basically said, no, sorry, separate is not equal. Constitution, you guys used to say it was, it's not anymore. So with this, they would basically say this idea that abortion's in the Constitution, sorry, no, it's not in the Constitution. Number two, right to privacy, which is what they based it on, has absolutely no application here. Right to privacy was based on this kind of penumbra, this emanation that they came up with, which said that unreasonable search and seizure somehow applies here. Unreasonable search and seizure is basically the idea that your home or your car can't be searched without a warrant. That's what they applied to this abortion on demand situation. So the court would basically come along and say, sorry, right to privacy has absolutely nothing to do with this. And it doesn't matter if you're in your home and your car can't kill people. So this has nothing to do with that abortion. It's not constitutional. And, um, you know, maybe they would look at a certain point or whatever it is. Roe v. Wade looked at viability. Viability has moved earlier and earlier. It's really an ever-shifting point based on medical technology. And even with Planned Parenthood, the Casey and these other cases, they basically backed away from the viability argument because they knew that that wasn't really a sustainable kind of thing to base their point on. And so I don't know if they would do something like that again with an earlier point. I imagine they probably won't because that gets very questionable. But um, but I could definitely see them see them overturning Roe v. Wade. And if that happened, Roe v. Wade would not make abortion um, illegal throughout the country. It would just go back to the states. Um, Roe v. Wade is basically just a blockade right now on any state that wants to pass a restriction um, that is pro-life. So if a state passes a heartbeat bill, unfortunately, it can't stand as long as Roe v. Wade is there because it's unconstitutional. So if Roe v. Wade is overturned, certain states who want to have restrictions will be able to, and other states probably here like New York and others will have very liberal laws on abortion like they do currently. And then later, the next step would be constitutional amendment, federal ban, those kinds of things. But Roe v. Wade would just send it back to the states. Sweet. And then a lot of us are, we're just regular people. We're not very involved in the political process and certainly aren't making Supreme Court decisions. And that's one of the reasons that you advocate for cultural change. And this is what you write. Uh, We need to make it uncool to support abortion. We need to create a pro-life culture because the pro-life culture saves lives. We need to convince people who believe that abortion is the lesser evil that in fact it is the greater evil. So as we wrap things up, Danielle, could you uh, give a call to action? And you you touched on this a little bit earlier, but a call to action to pro-lifers across the United States, to pro-lifers across Canada, and to pro-lifers across the world, whatever context they might be in, uh, and regardless of their their political situation. So whether Roe stands or or whether Roe is uh, you know is struck down, what is your call to pro-lifers around the world? My call to pro-lifers would be you're on the right side of history. Everything that you are believing in that's pro-life is good. It's right. And I would not be ashamed of it. I wouldn't back down. I wouldn't be afraid to talk to your friends about it and so on. I think sometimes as pro-lifers, we assume we're the weirdos, we're the freaks. And it's like, that's not true. It is very freakish to dismember a human being that has no reason to go through something like that. That's, that's horrible. That's, that's a bad thing. So the people who advocate for that should be uncomfortable. They should be the ones on the defensive. And the only reason they're not is because many of us don't really own the fact that we're pro-life when it comes to our friends, when it comes to the culture. So I would say wherever you are in the world, don't be afraid to post about it, to talk to people about it, and to uh, make sure that you can kind of do whatever you can in your sphere to influence people to be pro-life. And that means that some people won't want to be your friend anymore. That means that some people, you know, are not going to like you, but you never know. Some of those people might change later. As has actually happened to me from college. This one girl I used to know back then was like, and friended me and hated me and stuff because she knew I was pro-life. But then recently she just reached out to me and was like, I have changed on this and stuff. And so you just never know what's going to happen. And so I wouldn't say to base your actions off of the you know, reception you're going to get from other people, I would stick to the truth and stick to the facts and know that um, if you're an advocate for life and you're trying to convince people to the pro-life side that you are doing the right thing and to have confidence in that. I don't know if you can say this as well, Danielle, but um, 
there certainly is a high expectation that we will lose friends. But in, in my experience in the pro-life movement, I've also made friends um, and, and some of them even better friends and even closer friends as we uh, join the fight together. Many tiny friends. I like to think of all of my tiny friends, all of the tiny babies <laughs> will be saved. They will be our friends. And um, there's, I think there are greater rewards than um, whatever the cost is. That's right. Amen. All right. You wrote the book, The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America. Danielle, where can we find that book? You can find it on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble. Um, if you like listening to audiobooks, it's on Audible. Ebook, if you prefer the ebook format. Um, so all of the main places, wherever you like to read books. Awesome. All right, everyone, go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, wherever you prefer to purchase your books and pick up The Choice, The Abortion Divide in America by Danielle D'Souza Gill. Do it now. This episode's over, so do it now. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. This was such a great in-depth discussion. This was really fun. Cool. Thank you. All right, everyone. Danielle D'Souza Gill, that was our conversation with her. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to learn more about the pro-life guys, do find us on your podcast catcher. Uh, do subscribe wherever your, your favorite podcast catcher is. Do find us on social media, Instagram.com backslash guys, Facebook.com backslash guys, or check out our website, www.prolifeguys.com. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. We love doing this show and we love hearing feedback from our listeners. We have heard some great feedback. We've we've heard some good suggestions for future episodes. And and we just we've just heard from people who didn't have feedback or didn't have suggestions for future episodes. They just wanted to reach out and say hello. And that is something that we love as well. So thank you so much for doing that. And uh, we want to encourage you to do it again. Uh, do reach out. Uh, let us know how you found out about us. Let us know what you think about the podcast. And uh, we would love to hear from you. Cam, any final words from you, sir? As always, I broken record sort of thing. Um, go and have conversations. I want to highlight another good friend of mine. Her name is Denise. Um, Denise is one of our volunteers here in Calgary. She joins us almost every week for activism. She's incredible. Um, she's in her, I want to say she's in her 50s. Um, she never really pictured herself doing pro-life outreach. She comes out every week. She's having conversations this past Saturday. She was talking to somebody at um, one of our displays in Calgary. The guy thought that... Um, Abortion was totally cool. He he thought that abortion was okay in basically all circumstances. She w talked to him for five minutes. She referred to the picture that she was holding of a victim of abortion. Five minutes later, he walked away pro-life. Um, if Denise can do it, if I can do it, if Peter can do it, you can do it. Have conversations with people. Share with us how your conversations went. Where We love to not only um, hype the incredible people who are part of this community, but also um, give you some feedback. If, if you have questions about how things could have gone better or where we would have gone with a particular conversation, um, let us know. But yeah, go out and have conversations. Be like Denise, be like Peter. Try to, um, I, I was going to say be like me, but that's kind of weird. Um, be like Denise and Peter. Have some conversations, change some minds, help transform our culture. Thank you all for tuning in. Go get out there, have conversations, change minds, and save lives. Mm -hmm.